The Imposter Club is produced by talented people, staffing and headhunting company in TV production, with a mission to make the industry a happier, more creatively diverse place. Coming up... I did go off the rails because I felt like a failure. And I couldn't talk to anyone about it. I couldn't post on social media. That's why, like, now I'm very, um, you know, I do the good and the bad on social media because I want people to see that it's not all, all great all the time, but there's light and shade in everything. This is The Imposter Club, the podcast uniting all us TV, film and content folk secretly stressing that everyone else has it sorted except us. I'm Kimberly Godbolt, TV director turned staffing company founder, and each episode I want you to hear the real story of a successful industry figure, not the glossy announcements we usually see, but the truth of their career journey, including the bumpy bits, to help you make sense of your own. Health warning, this podcast may incur whiplash from violent nodding, plus an unfamiliar but hopefully welcome feeling of belonging. I couldn't be more thrilled to have Adil Amini here as my guest today. Adil is a series producer in studio entertainment and quiz, working on shows like Lingo and Lingo US with RuPaul, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire and Catchphrase. But if you work in TV, you might be more familiar with his name from big industry news headlines and your social feeds. And I don't just mean his beautiful influencer style selfies. A few years ago, he turned passionate campaigner, spokesperson and general good egg for all things mental health and working practice, founding support group The TV Mindset. I know that he found the energy and inspiration for that because of his own breakdown in 2016, brought on by lack of support for his own mental health challenges and made worse by the systemic racism he was experiencing at work. And by the way, this is something we may well be discussing on the podcast today as a heads up and a trigger warning. He wears tons of other impressive hats too. He's chair of the Coalition for Change, an elected committee member for BAFTA. And as a Yorkshire lad himself with humble roots, I know he is honoured to be on the board of Screen Yorkshire. Hello, Adil, and welcome to the Imposter Club. How are you doing? Hello. Oh my God, when you read all of that out. I do sound like a bit of an, I feel like a bit of an imposter, but um, I quite, yeah, that's very kind. Thank you, Kimberly. Well, look, I like to start by asking my guest the same question. How would you describe your relationship with imposter syndrome? I would say my relationship with imposter syndrome has changed over the years. And at the moment, it is quite a good relationship. It's something that I feel like I've fought against quite a lot over the years. Um, and that it's at a place now where that rebellion and that uh, fight has just made me so much stronger and more resistant to it, um, just because of the experiences that I've had in TV and outside. But um, yeah, I, I, feel, I feel not very impostery at the moment, which is good. Good. Glad to hear it. But I know, I mean, you've had a very colourful career. We've known each other for a while. Um, it's it's been a fascinating ride for you and I'm so keen to hear how you sort of ended up in that campaigner role. Tell me a bit about the earlier part of your career. So when we enter TV, obviously there's there's so many things that we all have to go through. And I think what I've realised over the years is a lot of the things that I was feeling was not just because of you know, the nature of TV, but also because of me being an underrepresented group. So obviously I'm... Um, 
British uh, Pakistani, South Asian origin, from Bradford, no TV background, no connections, uh, LGBTQ plus as well. So it's all like, you know, there's a, a lot of things going on there. And when I started my career, certainly, you know, even in the journey from researcher to AP, AP to producer, I was seeing things like, you know, people moving forward and not really knowing the full, uh, like every aspect of the craft. And I just thought to myself, I'm, I'm, look, I'm a nerd anyway. I, I was a straight A student. I like to be diligent. But I made sure that before I moved up, I knew every part of the production and everything that I was doing. So I would spend time with the PMs and the coordinators. I would spend time in the edit. I did a bit of casting as a researcher. I was a shooting AP as well. And then I found my groove in entertainment and comedy and that kind of thing. But I didn't want to move up without knowing full well everything. Everyone who was going to be under me, I needed to know how to do their job as well, just so that I could help them and support them, not because I wanted to like micromanage or interfere. So that continued when I, and, and a lot of people might look at me and be like, oh, you know, you're this age and you should maybe be further along or people your age further along. I was like, I don't really subscribe to that at all. You know, I've, I've been on my journey. And the reason I did all of that, and this brings it back to the minority thing, is that you don't want to move up too quickly. We've all heard that, you know, oh, that person shouldn't be an SP or an exec or whatever. And I didn't want to hear that for a number of reasons. A, I'm very, you know, proud of my work and I want to be known for doing good work. Um, but the other reason is I never want it to be looked at or accused of being the diversity hire, the one that's gotten up too quickly because um, he's from an ethnic minority or an underrepresented background. And if I did that just to get ahead, I feel like I would be letting down other people um, because then it doesn't, it really doesn't take much for people to start thinking like, oh, well, you know, those those groups aren't very good at their jobs they just get jobs because whatever and I've heard that I've seen it you know I've had racism covert racism overt racism over the years I've had you know celebrities uh, that I was doing phone chats with just saying that I don't sound Indian even though I've just said that I'm Pakistani and I'm like yeah it's a whole thing I've had you know execs do Jamaican accents in front of me while reading a script um and commissioners laughing and I'm just like this is this is really messed up and you've sort of internalized a lot of that. So I tried to do whatever I could because, you know, obviously a syndrome doesn't evade anyone. And when I moved up to SP and obviously suddenly you're running a gallery, you're, you know, working with a director, you're basically conducting this massive orchestra inside, um, you know, those rooms. And you've got people behind you, you've got people above you, you've got people below you, and you are in that sort of hub, you are the core of that. And you need a degree of confidence to be able to do that, especially if you've never done it before. But with the right support, you you can do it. Um, but I, I definitely had to struggle with my imposter syndrome at that, that stage and that jump off. Um, but I made sure that as a minority as well, I made sure that I honed my craft to the point that no one would be able to levy that accusation at me. So you were sort of mitigating that risk factor having seen that happened to peers of yours who'd got accused yeah. of moving up too yeah. soon as a, just uh, because they're a diversity hire, as you put absolutely, it? Absolutely, absolutely. And the thing is, it never comes across that way anymore. It's always, you notice patterns. And, you know, there are people who get away with absolute murder and they, they get away with, you know, doing the bare minimum. But then someone of a minority background makes a mistake and the reaction is entirely different. And they don't realise that that is racism, but it, it is. And that affects people. That reputation goes around. And, you know, it's like, well, how come 
the white people are staying in these jobs, but you're always getting rid of the people of colour or the disabled people. And you're like, at some point, it's it isn't them, guys. It's not. Because also, the degree of forgiveness and care I've seen, um, you know, other groups receive is not the same as as what we receive. It, it just isn't. So I think the playing field isn't level. And when we talk about equity a lot of the time, I think that's something to do with it as well. People's attitudes. Mm. Okay, so going back to those moments, though, that you outline where, you know, you have experienced racism personally um because i can always hear i can hear the ideal doing the campaign stuff here and i'm gonna kind of i want to get under that and ask you how you handled that at the time and also you know if you if you put yourselves in the shoes of someone else you're maybe out the other side of that i'm sure you're not clear of that but you certainly have the um kind of the retrospective look at it now imagine someone listening to this podcast is experiencing that how did you feel and about about it at the time and then how did you handle it i think it's a, a good question i'm glad you said that you want to get get under the uh, campaigner side because i'm more than happy to do that and i think what people don't realize is that you know when um as you very kindly said you know people did get to know me and and all that i didn't come fully formed surprise surprise like not not straight out of the box like this at all i had my journey i had my hiccups and I think people now see a version of me, but they've not seen, you know, I've been in TV 15 years now, and I think I've been, you know, sort of more in the spotlight, I would say, the last two. So there's like a whole, like, 12, 13 years that people do not know what has happened in my career, what the, you know, the things that I've been through. And how did I handle some of that stuff? I would say badly, <laughs> if I'm honest. I don't think I handled it very well. I don't think I did the right things that I now tell people they should do because I didn't have the agency, I didn't have the power. I had the fear, the freelancer fear. Um, I had the fear of, you know, being blacklisted as a minority as well. So I don't think I handled it very well. And in order to have an easy life and put my head down and not rock the boat, I carried on. And in retrospect, I'm like, actually, no, I should have called out that exec um, for doing a Jamaican accent. I should have said something in front of the commissioner. I should have said that is not okay. But, you know, we're talking years ago here, so the landscape has changed even in just three years, never mind, like, you know, five, six years ago. No. Um, so those things sort of happened, what, when you were mid, mid-career, mid sort of producer assistant level. producer, producer? When you no, could, producer yeah. level. So, so re- getting, re- yeah, re- definitely before, as an SP, I don't take any of that crap. And I try to make sure that, you know, A, I have my boundaries set up pretty well. Um, B, I empower other people, particularly the people lower than me, to have their boundaries. And if I'm out of line or whatever, we have a very inclusive environment. Um, and I hope anyone listening to this, you know, that, that I hope, yeah, if there's any of, of my teams listening, I hope they agree with that. Um, but I think the experiences that I've had, I'm very keen not to have them repeated on my watch. It's a lot to um, to think about now, let alone at the time when you were sort of handling it all. But let's go back to sort of you and your head down career path then. So um, you wanted to be super thorough at everything you did because you wanted to earn your promotions at the right point in your career. Um, But at the same time, you were experiencing this racism at work. Um, Tell me about that time in 2016 when things came to a head for you, Adia. What were the sort of the contributing factors and... How did that impact on on your career? Um, so in that regard, so what happened with me um, in 2016 and sort of led to this point is that I was a producer 
Um, and I was having a very rough time at work. I was being bullied at work. Didn't feel very good at my job. Um, it's a very clicky kind of team. Um, and I was also just slowly self-destructing and not diagnosed. I'd been misdiagnosed all through my 20s. So I was 29 at this time, um, just on the cusp of 30. And I had been told I got depression and anxiety all these years, but no one had actually sat down and told me that I had borderline personality disorder and ADHD. And both of those things were contributing a lot to my emotional state, the way I dealt with things. And what didn't help, because BPD is a uh, condition of extremes, the sort of fight or flight, you know, the feast of bam inside of TV, all of those things, you know, that constant anxiety, that did not help. And I was living in extremes and had a condition of extremes and just thought that was real life. That's just what it was. Um, and then I basically turned to substances and substance abuse. And I was, uh, you know, I talked about this very openly. I was a drug addict. And this was while I was hiding. I was masking the whole time and going to work, sometimes not in a good state. Um, was in an abusive relationship as well at the time, so that didn't help. So there's a lot of factors, basically, um, that resulted in me being face down in a gutter and probably one bad decision from not being here. And that is where my campaigning comes from. That is where, it, you know, I, I, I'm, it's sad that it's, it took that kind of thing to, for me to kick into gear. But look, if this is the result, then I'm really glad I went through it because it's now allowed me to help other people, not just other people, but help myself as well. And going through those experiences really did uh, sort of counteract a lot of my imposter syndrome. Um, because after that, and when I did recover, you know, things changed for me completely. But at that time, I had nothing. I had absolutely had no... It's so funny as well, like, in 2015, I was in the broadcast hotshots. They used to do it for under 30. And that year, that August, I remember, my name came out on it, and I could barely feed myself. I was going to sleep instead of eating because it was cheaper. And I, I, I just, you know, then I had to pack all of my things, like, for, you know, the eight years I've been in London... I lived on my brother's box room floor and I used to wake up like with a steam iron and a bag of rice um, above me and thinking, how the hell did I get here? And how has TV in London chewed me up and spat me out? Like I was angry. It was just, and obviously I'm not surprised my sort of, you know, uh, predilection to, towards these things, that condition that I did go off the rails because I felt like a failure. And I couldn't talk to anyone about it. I couldn't post on social media. That's why like now I'm very... Um, you know, I do the good and the bad on social media because I want people to see that it's not all all great all the time, but there's light and shade in everything. And yeah, I, I, I was just really, I just thought, I just felt like such a failure that I got to producer level and I've still, you know, feel like this. And, and weirdly, I think it's kind of poignant that, that we're talking about this given what people might be going through this year. You know, I know people who haven't worked for a really long time. I felt like that. And, and suddenly you feel like your entire career your entire talent skill, you know, your skill set is, you know, is summed up by what's just happened to you in the recent past. And I, I can't stress enough to everyone that it isn't. You are so much more than what you are going through right now. And if it is affecting you in, in negative ways and there's something bigger going on, and then, you know, there's ways of addressing that. But I felt prey to that and I really just don't want anyone else to feel the same. In just a minute... I was working when we went into the pandemic and the first lockdown in 2020 
And between March 2020 and March 2021, I, I kid you not, I made 100 hours of television. And that's when TV Mindset was its busiest. It's mad, isn't it? Okay, I'm going to get a bit geeky for a minute because I want to tell you about a company we've partnered with that I wish had been around when I was directing. Conote Pocketbook was created by documentary producer Eleanor Casely when she found getting paper consent forms signed by contributors or cast on location was A, fiddly, B, difficult for the edit, and C, a complete time waster. Not to mention so easy to lose when you think about GDPR. With Conote... You can just log in on your phone, tablet or desktop to collect, store and track contributor information on your shoot, which is then instantly accessible in one safe place for anyone on the team that needs it. And you can even use the app offline when you haven't got any signal. I got embarrassingly excited, you could say, when I had the demo. It's so cool and easy to use. You take contributor photos, write notes about what's sensitive and keep the whole team in the loop. And I can see why people rave about how much time it saves in the edit and the obvious cost saving that that brings. So no more illegible coffee stained note saying blur the brunette woman with short hair in coffee shop. And as a bonus, it's recommended by Albert as a sustainable solution that protects the planet whilst eliminating the faff. Prices start at just £95 a month. And with Eleanor and the team offering Imposter Club listeners a 20% discount if you mention this podcast. So get in touch via the website. It's www.conotes.tv, C-O-N-O-T-E.tv, or say hi to Eleanor directly, Eleanor at conote.tv. You're listening to The Imposter Club. And this episode, I'm talking to Adil Amini. Why did you feel like a failure when you were in the broadcast hotshots and you were at producer level? I um, I think I've looked, I've naturally been, and I think a lot of people in TV are like this. I <laughs> do describe myself as a chronic overachiever. Um, I have very high standards for myself. I am very self-critical. I also come from a family background where you know getting straight A's wasn't just enough. It was more like well. Did you were you top of your class? And it's like, well, well why does that matter? Okay. Um, standards of all sorts, whether it was community, again, like me being gay or something like that, it's just not, um, you know, what will it do for the image and yeah, that kind of thing. I think I just always wanted to prove myself. Always wanted to prove that I've got worse in this world, even if you know I am gay and you know Muslim or I am a certain. Yeah, I just wanted to make sure that I I felt good about myself. And I think I looked for that in the wrong places. And I certainly looked for that in in work. I thought, um, if I didn't have my job, who am I? Um, and I've, I've managed to successfully answer that question. Um, and yeah, it was. I was just looking for the, I thought, if I don't have a relationship, you know, who am I? What what do I do? And all of these things just sort of, yeah, came together. And then, you know, when you, you already have a pre-existing condition, um, it can be a recipe for disaster. So how, gosh, I'm sure there's no easy answer to this. How did you pick yourself up out of that gutter and begin to believe in yourself again? Mm. I think therapy is obviously a huge, huge thing. And I find the mental health aspect of imposter syndrome as well really, really interesting because I think 
I suffered it all my life without even knowing what the name of it was. And I felt like an imposter in two places. When I would go back home, I'm like, I'm quite, you know, different to everyone I've grown up with. No one else has really left home. I'm here. No one else I know has worked in TV. I'm very sort of creative, artsy, that kind of thing. And I don't really fit in there. And then I came down here and I'm like, I'm quite Asian in some of my ways. And I think a lot, you know, I speak all the languages and, you know, I don't have a TV background. I don't have any, I didn't, you know, even when I joined, I didn't even know what a recce was. And I was just like, I don't think I really fit. And I didn't, you know, there's, I, I was teetotal as well. So I was like, I don't really fit in here. Like, I don't, so I, I kind of didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. And that was really hard because you look around and you think, oh God, people make it look so easy. And I just I'm just floating. I don't, I'm neither here nor there. I'm not really Bradford. I'm not really London. I'm not really British. I'm not really Asian. And I'm just like, well, who the hell am I? And that was really difficult. Um, that was very, very hard to get my head around and uh, something I occasionally struggle with. But when I got through therapy and realized that actually this whole thing of like modesty and me um pretending or, or acting like i uh, just apologetic for my my being my presence everywhere i went i was like that is the biggest load of crap and like i am here for a reason i have had a career for a reason i have had all of these credits for a reason I'm a good person and the people that, that are in my life are there for a reason. So why, as somebody who's quite practical and fact-based and, you know, very evidence-based, I was like, why can't I look at that and be satisfied and be content with it and know that actually, and therapy helped with this, but, you know, that is a reality. Everything else is, you know, catastrophizing or, you know, just, just making, it's not, the reality and i think that's what what imposter syndrome does to us especially in a creative field is that it makes us question our reality but the reality is you are in that room you are doing that job you deserve to be there and we need to tell ourselves that because no one else is very good point and that is that is all about your relationship with yourself but like you say you're caught between two worlds mm. um how how can someone best find their authentic self and be that person at work when this industry any creative industry is so subjective and we all preach being yourself right but there is a level of code switching or turning chameleon as i used to call it that is beneficial and can be good whether it's with contributors with your boss if you're code switching and changing in ways that you make yourself feel like I'm sacrificing who I am I'm not being this true to myself I'm going to bed thinking and I'll feel a bit guilty about what I did today um or I've manipulated someone or you know that's not the real me that will stick with you and yes we all do it but I know that whatever decisions I make and whatever I do during the day I can go to sleep at night knowing I've got a clear conscience and I think that's the other thing as well in senior leadership positions I'm such a strong believer in vulnerable leadership. And I think there is this um, assumption that we as SPs or execs have to be right all the time, have to be able to be like completely infallible. 
And I'm like, find me someone who is like that because it's not. And, and sometimes that makes people act out. It makes them not admit their mistakes. It makes them double down on bad decisions and bad you know, ethical behavior. When all it would take is just either an apology or holding hands, it's like, shit, I, I, I messed that one up. Like, sorry, let's try and do this differently. Or maybe the, the, the schedule that I did or the team, the way I, is not was not the right way to do it. Let's try and fix this because people are clearly unhappy. But there's that ego, and I, I think sometimes like there's so many problems in the world. I think if we just step down from our ego, just just one just one tiny wrong, that things might be a little bit easier and simpler for us. Right. I mean, there's definitely a line, isn't there, between being almost like well, I don't know. Maybe you disagree. Too vulnerable, or yeah. um, not, or coming across as not having a clue what you're doing. Yeah. But also then, on the other end of the spectrum is being borderline arrogant and mm-hmm. overconfident and then sticking to your guns even though you've messed up right mm-hmm. there's somewhere in the middle yeah i think there's i think that balance is key i think there's a couple of things that you said there that are really interesting i think the first one is um you know just that that being fallible but not being too vulnerable like no one wants me to come into work and be like oh my god my boyfriend cheated on me oh my god like this is like no one wants that that's just ridiculous like that's not appropriate just be but when it's a work thing and you can have a laugh with your team and whatever and there's times when you do need to be a little bit stern and, and again it's that balance it's like looking at just as when i go and go out with my friends i will not tell them what has been going on at work you know that's not appropriate there's different forums for different things and that's you know i, I do believe in a separation on that front um, but there's still a way to be human. Um, I like to think that, you know, the personality that people hear on these podcasts or they see online or they see in person or they see as manager, I mean, it's pretty much me all the time. And and I think that authenticity really helps combat the imposter syndrome. Yeah, I think, and also being confident and finding your way and being yourself as much as you can at work and feeling good about your choices and being honourable Um it helps you build a team around you that feels the same. It, yeah. It, doesn't it? It kind of yeah. then grows. And then, and that's why it's so important to get leaders, um, it, you know, the, the right leaders at the top who then pass on that, that vibe, mm. that feel all the way down through the team and give that gift of um, acceptance and inclusivity mm. to the whole company, I think. My, my mark of success is not how well a show does because that is out of my hands. It's whether the team say, I would want to do that with you again, no matter what the circumstances. And that to me, oh, is, that's that, nice. that is what I can control. So in 2020, 2021, in the thick of your campaigning and setting up the TV mindset and the beginning of the Coalition for Change, how did you do that, deal? You were working as well, right? You mm. had a day job. Mm. Yeah. Tell me about that period for you personally. Uh, if I could describe it in one word, I would say burnout. And if I could do um, do it in two words, I would be like effing burnout. Um, it was horrible. It was again. It was one of those things where I <laughs> this is people don't realise it's so funny. I don't. I forget myself. But you know, I was working when we went into the pandemic and the first lockdown in 2020. And between March 2020 and March 2021, I, I kid you not. I made a hundred hours of television and that's when TV mindset was its busiest. It's mad, isn't it? It's like, and I did that from home. So now I'm like, if anyone says you can't work from home or people don't, I'm like, no, that's not true. I've done like 
apart from going into studio to actually film the shows, I, you know, catchphrase was one of the first shows back in studio. Um, and again, I would shout out my employers through that, those periods, STV, OMG, um, and others as well, who supported what I was doing. But again, that 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 high achieving side of me, that sort of like, you know, the one that's just like trying to prove a point to myself, I didn't give myself the day off because I started thinking, right, the campaigning was a no brainer. Like I was doing, I needed to do the right thing. I was in a position of power and I had a platform already because TV Mindset like started in 2018 under a different name. But I had to just keep doing that. It was the right thing to do. Uh, you know, again, that whole thing is like, would I be able to go to sleep at night if I didn't? No, that was that was a no brain. But what I didn't want was people with me going into work and people saying, well, he's not good at his job anymore because he's focusing on that campaigning too much. So I ended up pushing myself even more and be like, no, I am not giving anyone an excuse on either side to to pick at me. And people did regardless. Not not on the work side. God, the work side, you know, again, I was like, I know that, but on the campaigning side, people did pick at me. And I was like, I am doing my best here. I am doing what I can. And again, it was there was a lot of personal stuff going on at the time. Um, stuff that I didn't share publicly, because again, it's that thing of vulnerable leadership. As I like, actually right now in this moment in time, they don't need to know what's going on at home or, you know, with various family members or whatever, because that is not gonna help. But all I can do is just hold up and say, look, I'll do better. Um, and that's what I did. But yeah, at that time, it was just, it was mad. And I'm not surprised I, I burnt out. And, you know, it was it was very much that freelancer thing of like, I've got to be the absolute best at all of the things I do. Yeah, I, I think that also there's that, as you say, with, with being a freelancer, you feel like you can't have an off day. Mm. Um, and you were overcompensating as well mm. because you wanted to make absolutely sure that your employer wasn't going to say your output, your quality of work is being affected by the stuff that no one's actually asked you to do. Um, I mean, you became a kind of, I think you became a celebrity in the industry at that time. <laughs> I, I, honestly, I think we saw you everywhere. Um, um, you were in all the broadcast publications. You were on webinars. You were talking to us, talented people. We were you know, you were everywhere. What sort of toll did that like take on you personally being sort of out there and with people not really knowing who you are? Do you know what the interesting thing is? I think I never, you know, I never asked for any of that. And what I find really difficult is is the ownership side of it, is that when you are in the public space and you open yourself up and you talk a lot and you try and fight the right thing. And yeah, surprise, surprise, I have some opinions. And if you know, um, but it's um people think they own you and when they think they own you they think they can say whatever they want and i'm like hang on a minute like i wouldn't if you were somebody on the street and you came up to me and started slagging me off like i wouldn't put up with that so why are you doing it now you know that got really weird that got really really weird and i, I do still find so what, it did, like... you, did you get personal criticism for the oh campaigning God. stuff yeah 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 yeah. oh i got told i was doing it um uh for the attention and I was like if you knew how, what my therapy bills were if you knew what, what I'm going through while I'm doing I was like and part of me just made me and, and you know I have taken a break from it for a year because you know there's been a lot of loss in my personal life but I was just also like I'm exhausted I am it's the last thing I think about when I go to sleep first thing I wake up and I've got emails I've got messages I've got distressing stories I've got all of this stuff and I'm doing my day job this is coming up 
I now find a lot of joy in celebrating others. And I think the reason for that is because I also celebrate myself. I need to take a minute to say a big thank you to the team at Edit Cloud for supporting the edit of the Imposter Club podcast. The founder, Simon Green, said it was an obvious partnership as Edit Cloud felt like the imposter of the post-production world when they began. They are the world's first truly native cloud-based virtual editing solution, connecting tech, training and talent all over the world. Edit Cloud was created by editors for editors, connecting storytellers everywhere, enabling them to craft their best stories to excite, enrich and inspire audiences wherever they are, much like this podcast. Thank you, team. I am so happy not to be crying into my laptop while I midnight edit. This is the Imposter Club. Back to the episode. Did you want to walk away from it at various points or were you always manifestly determined that no matter what, you would get to a certain point? There's two sides of me that answer that question. There's the personal side, which makes me think I wish I'd never done it. And the professional side, which makes me glad every single day that I've done it. I'm not solely responsible for... Um, the conversations that are happening right now in TV, just as as a series producer, I'm not solely responsible for the success of the show. But I can acknowledge my path in it, and I am so glad the dial has moved, even from, like, pre-pandemic. No one was talking about anything. And, and you know, I remember the BBC article I did in, like, the, in January 2020, and everyone responded to it, because it's the first time somebody had just gone openly and publicly and talked about stuff. And that was another thing. I didn't want to hide behind anything. I was like, no, I am a real person with real experiences. I am going to talk about these things. And at this point in time, I don't really care what happens to my career because it's not about me. One of the other things that I live by is always leave a space in a better condition than when you found it, whether that's like, you know, a room or someone's mood or whatever. And I sound like that about this industry. It's not about me anymore. It's about the other deals and Kimberly's and all of the other people that are coming up. It's like, I've had my time. I've had a good run. You know, if I need to retrain, I'll do that. But right now, I need to make this place better because I don't know how long I've got left in it. I just want to make it a little bit nicer. So I did want... So the, the personal side, I'm like, oh my God, why did I put myself through that? And, you know, whatever. Uh, the professional side, I'm really proud. I'm really proud. And that does also help with the imposter syndrome because um, I think what we tend to do either in this industry and certainly as British people as well, is is really default to modesty. And I get it. You know, I, someone, oh, says, definitely. someone says, you look nice. And, oh, you, you oh, this whole thing, I got it, you know, from wherever for three, three quid. And, you know, that that's blah, blah, blah. And I've really learned again through therapy. I'm like, oh, thank you. Yeah, actually, I, I think I do look nice today because I deliberately left the house wanting to look nice. And if someone has seen <laughs> that, then I've done my job. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, or, you know, oh, that was a great thing you did. And then, and what we end up doing is just brushing it off so much that we end up believing it. And it's like, no, yes, no. Yes, we can... have to be able to say thank you. I, yes. Yeah, I acknowledge yeah. my part of that. And I appreciate you saying that. Thanks. Yeah. And it's like, you can, both of those things can be true. You can hold space for you being, you know, acknowledging a compliment and also still being humble. Like, I think there's enough, crap in the world that is going to make us feel a, a like we don't belong and b that we are a fake and we don't need to do that to ourselves no and actually something that 
can really exacerbate imposter syndrome is social media. That can really be detrimental to your own mental health if you're scrolling and comparing and looking at other people all the time. How has your relationship been with social media, Adil? Well, I always make the joke that uh, in the shows that we make, if I was a contributor, I'd fail at the background check stage when they do the social media thing. I'd be like, you said what <laughs> to you? Like what? Um, so yeah, I don't think I'd ever make it on TV, so everyone's safe on that front. Um, but I've actually deleted Twitter. People don't realise this. I've had a couple of people ask me if I've blocked them and I'm like, no, I deleted my personal Twitter because it wasn't... Is that me. just because of Elon Musk and uh, Rena? I mean, or... that was a very high contributing factor, but it was also <laughs> a place that was not making me happy anymore. And I've still got TV Mindset, Twitter and Instagram is where I'm at. Obviously, Facebook is where we started. So, and then a lot of jobs are there as well. So, um, yeah, it, it's... it's I've kept that. But my relationship with it was not... It was just... If something doesn't, you know, make me happy, why I have to really question why I'd still keep it around. And I had this conversation with my writing partner as well at one point where he's just like, Oh, you know, Instagram and this and I was like, You own this thing in your hand. You control it. You can choose what you see on it. And I then end up being like, Well, how much of this am I wanting to do? Like, I am doom scrolling because I like feeling this way. So one time I'm like, Where where at what point am I gonna just say no? And weirdly, I mean I I then apply that to, you know, being pushed around in real life so I'm like mm, no I, I control this space or whatever so when am I going to say no but I'm not going to lie like social media has been it's been a blessing it's been a curse I think everyone knows full well the very public curse that I've had with social media and how my life has been plastered all over the internet um but I have also seen the benefits of it tv mindset of the campaigning that I do would not have reached so many people if it wasn't social media but putting all of that aside as a producer I think it is really interesting because I still have that old, you know, insecure side of me that used to look at Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram and think, oh, my God, that person's got work. Oh, my God, that person is is doing so well. And I know the irony of me saying this because I fully post all of my achievements. I, I Also because, look, with ADHD, you've got a really bad memory. And I like to look back when there's memories. Club, but I'm like, oh, I did this thing that day. I can't even remember what I did last week, Kimberly. Like, this is, a, you know, it, it's, it's, so it's, for me, it's quite helpful. It's a document. And it's like, oh, God, I, you know, and even, uh, this sounds like a really extreme example. But, you know, one of my best friends took her own life last year. And I'm glad I took all of those pictures and posted them because then when they come up, I'm like, oh my God, I'd forgotten that we did that. And that's a nice memory of it. And this and, that. and so for me, it's like that documentation. But again, it's also celebrating my own success because who else is gonna? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I, I've worked really hard for this. I, you know, I do want people to know that I've, I've done this thing and I'm quite proud of it. However, on the other side of that, if you're not in the same space, you can look at somebody like that and be like, oh my God, I'm such a failure. Oh my God, they've got everything. Oh, I'm feeling a little bit insecure in this and that. And that's just not a space that we should be getting in. I think it's so e- easy to just like look at, especially in this competitive creative environment. Like I do a lot, I know that, but that doesn't take away someone else's successes. It is so, I'm everyone's biggest cheerleader as well. I know my friends do well, I'm like, yeah, because it doesn't take anything away from the success that I have had. You know, me championing someone else or seeing someone else does not make, does not diminish 
the success that I have achieved in my life. And I now find a lot of joy in celebrating others. And I think the reason for that is because I also celebrate myself. And that mm. is also the, the negative side of imposter syndrome is that you just think, oh my God, you know, they're doing this, that and the other. But I think there's enough, there's enough to go around. There's enough joy that, you know, we can partake in that. But the reason it might affect us is because we're not doing the same for ourselves. I love that, that that you have, because you have found this joy within yourself and you're in a a good place right now, yeah. that you then, by default, find it easier to find joy in other people's successes yeah. rather than kind of bitterness or resentment. Yeah, and I think, you know, we want to go back to what we were saying earlier about, um, you know, what people were saying about me at certain points and, you know, my life was being discussed on internet forums. It really resonated with when you, know, when you invited me on this lovely podcast and, and you know, the word imposter, it's sort of defined as being a fake and trying to deceive other people. And I think the way that it sort of got through that is like, I'm not trying to deceive anyone. I'm just being me and I'm trying to work hard and just be really honest and just find my place in this mad old world. And if we can try and do that without, and, I, and, and I'm really proud that I've never stepped on anyone to do it and because and I, I just couldn't. And that for me is enough. Like if that was, if this was my chapter closed today, I live my life as if like every day is my last. And I'm like, if that was it, I'm so proud of who I am, what I've put out there and who I've become. And and that could be in a tiny space. It could be just within my flat. It could be in my office. For me, it's been a bit larger. But even then I'm like, I've not forgotten who I am. And I'm really proud of who I am because I've been through a lot more than people realise. And if I can get through that, and hold my head up high, then this is nothing. Oh, Dale, don't. Oh, <laughs> that is really genuinely beautiful. Are you, what would you say you are most proud of achieving through all of these sort of bumps in the road, both in your career and personally? So this is this is really interesting because I have a thing that I always say and it was only until you asked me on here that I realised it was a bit of imposter syndrome coming through and I think I need to stop saying it and what I always say is how did a kid from Bradford get here how did a kid with no TV connections and I, I've always said that and for me it just keeps my childlike wonder about everything alive when I'm in a gallery when I'm working with report I'm like how the hell did I get here like what <laughs> and now it was only when I started thinking about this podcast, I was like, huh, that that's a bit of imposter syndrome coming through. Because why not? Why I mean, you worked hard, why don't you, you know? So I would always I always would have said that like that would have been my most proudest thing that like, you know, a, a thing you know, kid from Brad no TV connections, you know, doing all that stuff. Um I think I, I can give you the very sort of shallow answer and I can give you the the sort of the, the deeper answer but you know look if we're talking career wise I am really proud that I have managed to work on such incredible shows um I've managed to you know work with I've ticked everything off my tv bucket list pretty much like it was it's that is incredible to to do and I'm, I'm really happy with um, the support that the people that I've met, the support that I've received, you know, I'm really proud of that. Um, I suppose the, the deeper answer is, you know, what am I most proud of is just 
that I'm able to have conversations like these and people say these nice things and you know for somebody who really didn't like themselves and really didn't believe in themselves you know for people to suddenly start looking at me that way I'm like do you know what kid you've done you've done good you've done all right that is so nice and I was going I, I often ask my guests what what they would have said to the younger version of themselves but I kind of think you've You've just done that. I mean, yeah. is there anything you would add? Be yourself a lot quicker. <laughs> I know I had to go through um, a fair bit. I think, um, yeah, don't shy away from therapy. Uh, don't you know? Let the the, the world's view of therapy and you know, obviously when, when we were growing up, it was like, oh, you're, you know, you're going to therapy. What's wrong with you? That kind of thing. Especially when you're from the north as well and South Asia and all that stuff. So don't listen to that. But if if there's a way of being your most authentic self a little bit quicker, I, I would try and do that and not, not be so scared about what other people think because they're just good people are going to talk. <laughs> that's, that's it. People are going to talk. And, and at the end of the day, you know, it's to you that you have to go to bed with at night. And, and if that person is settled and happy and you're happy with who that person is, then, you know, bring it on, world. Oh, dear. What a lovely conversation. <laughs> Thank you for going beyond and beneath the campaigner um I, I i really have enjoyed allowing people to get to know you and your challenges with both mental health and coming up through the ranks being from a minority group and from the regions i feel so strongly that what seems like a bouncy social happy exciting industry can be an incredibly lonely place and by having these sorts of conversations um i am really hopeful that with you sharing so much and some really excellent other guests going deep into their career into their secrets and challenges and wrestles with imposter syndrome that we can promote a healthier happier workplace overall that's that's what i really want to achieve from this so thank you so much for being a part of it i just think what you have done over the years and what an amazing human you are. I just have so much respect for, I'm so grateful. I know a lot of people are too. In fact, you're gonna make me cry there. <laughs> but I will say, and I have to I have to say it, thank you as well for everything that you do, because it, I think, you know, the way that talented people lift others up as well is, is definitely an example we can all follow. That's it for this episode of The Imposter Club, brought to you by Talented People. I'm Kimberly Godwell and it has been lovely to hang out with you while you commute slash gym slash dog walk or whatever you're doing. If this has struck a chord, please go ahead and share it with your friends in that closed WhatsApp group I'm not in or on your social networks. Our aim is to reach as many fellow imposters as we can to share love and learnings and create a sense of belonging. And if you haven't already, follow or subscribe to the pod so you don't miss an episode drop. Thank you to Talented People, produced and hosted by me, Kimberly Godbolt, exec producer, Rosie Turner, editor, Ben Mullins. See you later. And thanks again to Edit Cloud for editing this series.